Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 18th, we are studying Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. What was Jesus' childhood like? St. Luke gives us a glimpse into one account from the Holy Family's trip to Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus was 12 years old. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. Pastor Murray serves at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and he is also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor, let's talk a little context. Remind us where we are in Luke's Gospel, what's been happening so far that we need to know leading up to today's text. Right. So this is the end of the birth narrative, I would say, um, because after Jesus goes home with his parents at the end of this text, um, you know, the next thing is the arrival on the scene, uh, of course, of the baptizer. And then we have the genealogy. So we've had, of course, the word to Zechariah about John the baptizer. Uh, then, of course, we've had the visit of Mary and Elizabeth. Then we have the birth narrative itself in chapter 2, you know, 1 to 20. Then you have the visitation at the temple uh, when, uh, when we hear the Nunc Dimittis sung, of course. Uh, then the, the Holy Family returns to, to Nazareth from, uh, uh, from where they're living. Um, so they, they settle in Nazareth. And then, uh, then this is the, the 12-year-old Jesus arriving uh, in the temple um, as the temple's Lord, uh, and yet there he is a small child. So, so that's the context of, of this particular pericope. With, with this being the end of the birth narrative, as you said, and, and this being Jesus as a 12-year-old, one of the things—this is always just a very curious text for me, because it is the, the only text that we have in any of the Gospels— that records something from Jesus' childhood. I mean, so I guess mm -hmm. with, with that in mind, like what what do we do with a text like this where we see a 12-year-old 12, 12 Jesus? We're used to baby Jesus, and we're used to, to grown-up Jesus, but here we've got 12-year-old Jesus. Why, why do we need to know something about 12-year-old Jesus? Uh, well, I think that that's embedded in this text itself. In other words, it is quite clear that even the 12-year-old Jesus is absolutely conscious both of his mission and his connection to his heavenly father. Uh, it, there's no unclarity on his part about who he is and how he relates to his father. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And he, it, there's no doubt for him. Uh, that that's the case. And I think this is a wonderful gift to us because, of course, um, mainly I think in the previous two centuries, interpreters of the New Testament uh, argued that Jesus had no clue who he was, that he stumbled into this messianic thing, kind of like the life of Brian, you know. 
Uh, and, uh, and so it's really helpful for us to have this wonderful word from Luke about the 12 year old adolescent Jesus who says, I've got to be about my father's business. He knows who his father is. And he says those words over against uh, Mary and Joseph standing right there. I think I mean I think you're right on, especially with the idea of the purpose of Jesus, and in even I know we'll come to this in the text itself, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the the necessity that Jesus speaks of here, you know, that he has to be in his father's house. That's the same language that he uses later on in the Gospels concerning his own suffering, death, and resurrection. And so, yeah, the the purposefulness of Jesus all along is going to be one of the the big themes I think that we're gonna we're gonna pick up from this text. Right, I agree. So, and Pastor Murray, one more thought on on the text itself and, and the way that we we look at this text, and just thinking through some of the sermons that I've preached and some of the sermons that I've heard on on this text, many fine ones, of course, that I've, I've heard. But I'm curious on the way that we look at this text. I I often hear about it, and sometimes I think about it with Jesus as an example. How do we how do we hold that use of the text together with the way that we're going to see him as our savior as well? In other words, how does that how does the text do both of those things? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, you see him as savior because he's in his father's house, uh, seeing to the delivery of the word, um, having that you know wonderful conversation with his people. Uh, about the meaning of Holy Scripture. Uh, he's, he, uh, and of course, again, his focus is on his mission as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, um, which of course that, that Lamb was being sacrificed in that temple for the days that he, he was there, which would have been three or four days uh, of, of spending time in the temple. Uh, so, so the the sign of his coming sacrifice is is being sacrificed uh, right there mm. while he's having the chit chat with the rabbis and other teachers. Um, now, of course, uh, connected with that, he who is God of God is also deeply respectful of the human relationships into which he's been placed by the incarnation. So, so despite his incredibly exalted position, yet still he goes down to Nazareth with his parents and is submissive to them. That's a very strong term uh, that you get in this text. So, you know, we often, in fact, I preached on this text uh, um, in the second Sunday of, of Christmas, um, and pointed out, you know, that this 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 one who has uh, who is so exalted, who is this God of God, light of light, is also quite willing to subject himself to the authority of his parents. Should we be any less willing to subject ourselves to appropriate authorities, whether parents or or governmental authorities or church authorities, and and so on? So. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful example to us that he who who literally did not have to be obedient was glad to be so, uh, was seen to be so, and indeed right down to the point of being under the authority of those uh, who were certainly his inferiors, 
though God had placed him in the family of Mary and Joseph. This is, uh, and we're in that same situation as children. We've been placed in a specific family. I love Luther who says, you know, that we're obedient to our parents, not because they're always right, but because God gave them to us. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's fantastic. So we're going to see Jesus both as Savior and as example in this text. Let's jump right in. Again, we are in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52 this morning. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's our text for today. That's Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Pastor Murray, as the text begins, he Luke sets the stage for us that Jesus and his parents, they would go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. You've mentioned this already, but remind us of that context. What What's the Feast of the Passover? What is this festival they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate? Sure. So, of course, we remember uh, in the Exodus where uh, God passes over uh, with the angel of death because the doorposts and lintels are marked with the sacrificial victim's blood. And so death cannot um, work its way among the people of God because this uh, sacrificial sacramental sign of the presence of God with his people Um, is there on the doorposts and lintels. Now, of course, you had the whole Passover meal with the sacrifice of the lamb, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread. Of course, this is uh, the the feast is also called the, uh, you know, the feast of the unleavened bread. Um, And and so God commanded as a remembrance of his salvation, um, his passing over his people and protecting them. Um, that they should remember this Passover by repeating that meal and the sacrificial activities that went with it um, on a yearly basis, which would have happened, of course, in the spring. Um, um, and and it was it was then offered um, to God's people uh, that that, you know, they were to remember this holy uh, salvation that God had worked for them. Uh, during the time of of the Exodus. Now, there was a command that this should be done over seven days. um, And if they were able, they were supposed to go up to Jerusalem uh, for these events. Um, The Talmud actually says that they didn't need to stay the full seven days. If they were there for two days, that was fine. Um, Although I think our intuition, uh, based on this text, Uh, And the way Luke writes it um, is that Mary and Joseph were um, very pious Jews 
and you know we're going to the nth degree to participate in the festival so we we would expect that they were there for the full seven days uh, of the feast um, and then they they return uh, back toward um, back toward Nazareth um, after the after the seven days are complete hey, you mentioned earlier as we were talking about this that or mentioning you know the the Jesus as Savior here, the fact that he's there at the the Passover, and again, I, you know, Luke could have recorded whatever he wanted to from the various events of Jesus' childhood. He chooses very specifically the feast of the Passover when Jesus is twelve years old. What are the what are the connections then? And I, I think you've already given us a few of these. What are those connections that the Passover particularly is going to show us Jesus as Savior? Sure. So I mean, he's he is that. Um, he is, his blood is on the doorposts and lintels of our hearts, uh, you know, as the hymn puts it. Uh, he is the fulfillment of the yearly sacrif- sacrifice of the lambs for the Passover meal. Um, you know, they could only stave off uh, physical death. They could only stave off, um, uh, you know, the sin of this year, these sacrificial victims. And but now uh, he has come suddenly to his temple, you know, Malachi three um, and his uh, goal, his mission is to um, be the fulfillment of those temporary and temporal promises uh, given in the Old Testament um, a right of of the Passover. And so, um, you know, he's a fulfillment of these things. And, you know, to be a fly on the wall and to hear the conversation between himself and the rabbis, uh, what were they talking about? Could it have been this kind of thing? Uh, who knows? Uh, but but um, maybe there's a novel to be written there. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I I never really thought too much about that, but I, I think you might be onto something there when you get down to verse forty six and it describes that there's this conversation happening between Jesus and the teachers. Everyone's amazed at his understanding and his answers. I mean, I I know this is is moving forward a bit, both in in the narrative and in the and in terms of Jesus chronology. But when you know when he shows up in Nazareth in Luke chapter four and he preaches that sermon and he says, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." I I don't know if if the twelve year old Jesus is going to be speaking quite that boldly there in the temple, but but man, yeah, you you do start to wonder if if perhaps their conversation was around the Passover and what that meant and what it was pointing toward. And if that was, you know, some of Jesus questions were, were leading the rabbis to, to ask those questions themselves. Sure. Well, and the fact is that, that he's the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And he's living in the nun, the now uh, always. And so as he's proclaiming and, and asking these kind of thoughtful, penetrating questions, in the temple, um, he's leading the rabbis into the now of salvation. Um, and, and I think that's part and parcel of the amazement that they experienced. Uh, you know, he, he's physically come, uh, and now is the time of salvation. 
uh, uh, being experienced there by the rabbis. Mm. I mean, that, that certainly fits very well with some of the themes that Luke has already given us when the angel comes to the shepherds. You know, he, he tells the shepherds that unto you is born this day, today, right, right now. And, and same for Simeon, you know, he's holding baby Jesus. And so he, he sings that his eyes have seen the salvation right then and there. And so, yeah, for the rabbis in the temple, right then and there. They are particip- they're seeing the salvation even in this this 12 year old. But before we get too far away from it, Pastor Murray, yeah. when, with Jesus observing the Passover, as you said, he's the fulfillment of the Passover. And I think you, you've mentioned this already you know, of, of anyone who who wouldn't have to observe the laws of the Old Testament to do all these festivals, Jesus is the guy. What does it say about him that he does he does participate in the Passover? Oh, I, this is a, a wonderful point. Um, and I think it's part and parcel of his willing to be set under authority. Um, as you say, he has no internal reason um, to be obedient to these things. He does them, of course, for our sake, right? He's fulfilling the Passover perfectly in his own person. Uh, so that that holiness can be attributed also to us. The other wonderful thing is, um, and, and we hear it elsewhere in the Gospels, as was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, uh, if this is the customary act of the eternal Son of the Father, who is the revealer of God perfectly and knows God's word inside, outside, backwards, and forwards, and yet he goes to synagogue for instruction. I mean, who are we to say, oh, I don't think I need church today. (laughs) I mean, that's a crazy kind of conclusion for a Christian to reach, given the, the example of the eternal Son of the Father. Right. So the, and that's the next thing, you know, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So this is something that they did regularly, even though Luke picks out this time when Jesus was 12 years old. If he had wanted to, he could have picked out any time during Jesus' childhood, at least as part of showing Jesus as one who did this regularly. And so, yeah, here's, here's another place for us as Christians to see Jesus as our example, that he willingly went to, I mean, if I can say it like this, he went to church. So if Jesus needed to go to church, so do you. And I do, I mean, and and this, we can talk more about this later when we get to the, the note about Jesus being submissive to his parents. But I think the fact that you see Mary and Joseph as conscientious in, in this, that they they were the ones who who brought Jesus to the temple. I mean, he, he goes willingly and submissively, but they brought Jesus to the temple. I, I think we can see Mary and Joseph here as as examples of pious Christians who who also, again, if I can just say it simply, they go to church. Right. And bring their children. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if if the if the parents of Jesus brought him to church, then goodness, I as as father need to bring my children to church. Right. Absolutely right. So Pastor Murray, so they, they go, they're doing this according to custom. And then, then comes the, I don't know if the, the problem in the text where the feast is ended. And, and as you said, it, it would seem that they're there for the full seven days as the Old Testament talks about. They leave and Jesus stays behind. His parents didn't know it. Talk, talk I guess, a little bit about the dynamics because, I mean, how embarrassing for Mary and Joseph to be, to be written down here in Luke. And what are they known for? They lost Jesus. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That it, it's quite an admission, and and I appreciate this as well. 
um, because again, uh, you have uh, doubters of Holy Scripture who would say that uh, Luke's narrative uh, is is um, a bunch of mythological hash slung together. Um, but again, as you read the Gospels, the folks in charge of delivering the data come out smelling like the manure yard. Mm. Um, whether it's the disciples and their goofiness and, and maybe downright unbelief, uh, or this uh, horrifying occurrence of, uh, of losing the eternal son of the father. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, it gives the ring of absolute veracity that Mary, who's delivering the story to Luke, um, just honestly says, we started for home, did not account for Jesus, got a whole day's journey away and went, oh, wait a minute, we thought he was with the group. And they had to go back. And worse yet, that they spent three days looking in all the wrong places, as the pop song says. <laughs> uh, and and finally, maybe out of desperation, well, let's go look in the temple and see what's going on there. Mm. And, of course, they're stunned, flabbergasted to find him in the temple. So all of that sort of speaks to the real humanity and the truthfulness of the story, the humanity of of, of um Mary and Joseph, the real situation. And I'll, I'll tell a story on myself to kind of corroborate this. Uh, when my oldest daughter was about two, we went to a large gathering of people. Um, there were, there were uh, barriers in various places in this event. It was a home show. Um, I had sat down behind a barrier just to relax. My wife was looking around. My two-year-old slipped under that barrier and I couldn't get to her till she got out of my sight. And of course, I spent about 25 minutes in utter terror, wondering where my two-year-old was running around the floor of this display, trying to find her. And of course, some pious person grabbed her and said, you know, you don't need to be by yourself. And, and that was just about the time, you know, we were able to catch up with her. But this rings true to me that they lost their son in Jerusalem. Um, it's happened to parents all the time. You don't like telling that story, but it's truthful. So I appreciate it from that perspective. Certainly. I mean, and you, we've seen these, you know, notes of, of, like you said, real humanity, truthfulness throughout Luke's gospel, often associated with Mary. As, as you said, this is coming to Luke. He, I mean, he very likely just talked to her and she told him what happened and he wrote it down under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this being another one of those. And, and as you said, I mean, what, what parent doesn't have a story something like this where where you know i mean just something where you're like oh i can't believe i did that with my kid that's <laughs> it it rings true and now yes. to be i mean to be fair i guess maybe part of the reason it stands out is because we've oh in the last 10 years or so we live in an age of of what are sometimes called helicopter parents i mean where you know sometimes parents are just like all over their kids and it seems unimaginable but for most of history this really isn't all that unthinkable, in, and even in a way that's not, say, em, as embarrassing as it, it first comes off, there's a, right. there's a note of authenticity in terms of just the way that the travel would have happened here. Certainly. I mean, they come from a relatively small community, uh, Nazareth, and, and, you know, everybody knew everybody. It definitely is, quote, small town. Um, their relatives were in that group. 
their their acquaintances and friends were in that group. Um, the children certainly would have played together on the way back down from Jerusalem to Galilee. Um, and apparently this had been the normal habit of Jesus, um, you know, that he wasn't necessarily within eyesight of his parents uh, when the group when the group moved on. Um, so so uh, their standards of child care um, are somewhat different than our own, you know, both for good and for ill, it seems to be. But but it is different. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, yeah, for good and for ill. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm imagining some, you know, there, there's probably some situations in our world today that are, are similar. You know, imagine a, a large family reunion where all the cousins are, are playing together. And I, I think this still happens where, you know, the mom and dad say, well, of course, they're, they're over there playing with with cousin cousins from from across the way. And, and yeah, I don't know precisely where they are, but they're with the group. They're with the family. Right. And so the the immediate sense of as, as you were describing with with your daughter, you know, the immediate sense of, of terror. Oh no, it's it's again. There's it rings true that that this is just sort of an everyday kind of thing that could have happened to anyone, and it just so happened that it happened to Mary and Joseph, who were caring for the eternal Son of God. So they they lost Jesus, and and they realize it about a day into the journey. About how far was it from from Nazareth to to Jerusalem? What kind of journey are we talking about there? It's a three-day journey, um, as as measured uh, from some of the literature of the ancient world. Of course, they were on foot, um, and uh, so to go back to Galilee, I think it was about a seventy or eighty mile uh, journey. They were doing probably something like twenty-five miles a day, uh, which is quite a hike, quite frankly. Sure. Uh, we, we're not used to that, but they were in in better physical condition and could could do those walks because that was their only choice. Um, so, so this is, this is what they have in mind. So they've gotten, uh, probably a good 25 miles away from Jerusalem, uh, when they, when they realize that, that Jesus is not with the group and they have to spend the whole next day getting back there. Um, and, and then of course they're hunting for him. Uh, and that's where we will take our break. We're going to look at more of this on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at the end of Luke 2 with Pastor Scott Murray. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 18th. We're studying Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52 with Pastor Scott Murray. He served at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, and he's also the third vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Murray, prior to the break, we left off in the account where Mary and Joseph have realized Jesus isn't actually among our family. They've made the journey back to Jerusalem to look for him, 
and they look, and Luke says that it's after three days they find him in the temple. Now, for readers of Scripture, three days is a significant number. Uh, On the one hand, that's how long they looked. They really looked for three days. But on the other hand, it sure seems, again, this is another one of those reasons why Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks out this account. What are we seeing here with the three days? Well, you're getting some uh, foreshadowing, I think, of the, uh, of the three days of the Passion. So death and resurrection. Um, I think, actually, they thought Jesus was dead by this time. Hmm. Um, and in fact, the the um, participle used um, in um, in verse forty eight when she says, "You know, your father and I have been seeking you," and uh, you know the the participle means uh, the, our distress was extreme to the and and the other usage of it in the New Testament in Acts has to do with the death of somebody. Um, so they really thought they were going to find him in a gutter dead in Jerusalem. And so in some ways, you know, they've had the experience of death and resurrection with finding Jesus and of course, finding him on the third day, uh, you know, certainly rings bells for the person who knows the narrative, uh, that there is a resurrection after the third day. Um, and, and quite frankly, I mean, we talk about when someone dies that we've lost them. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. Um, they were convinced perhaps by the third day that he was dead. And then, of course, he's raised for them again in the presence of God and in the holy temple, um, you know, which is the center of their faith. Oh, and by the way, of course, um, Luke's gospel, the whole thing begins in the temple, right, with Zechariah, and ends after the ascension when the disciples go back to the temple. So the temple is kind of the frame in which um, uh, all these important things occur. Um, And again, this is about the presence of God with his people. This this matter of of Jesus being lost and found, or dead and raised, and, and the three days, and finding Jesus— and seeing it throughout Luke's gospel, I mean, what, is, what does that have to say for our lives as, as Christians in terms of, you know, us, and I, I'm going to put air quotes around this, I know you can't see this, but us finding Jesus, sometimes that phrase gets misused, he's right. not lost, but I mean, how do, how do we take this and, and use it as Christians? Well, I mean, we have to keep coming back to the temple. (laughs) In other words, we have to come back to where God reveals his compassion for us and forgiveness in his son. We do that in the word. We do that as the word is delivered to us, where we gather together around word and sacraments. Uh, so, So we're always living the baptized life. Uh, we're conducting our lives continually in the sight of this God who gives himself and and is present with his people. Um, he's only findable because he desires to be found. It isn't, you know, it's not some great discovery on our parts. Um, and indeed, Mary and Joseph are kind of like, you know, why did you do this to us? That they're, they're they're negative with with Jesus upon 
upon finding him. And so maybe sometimes so are we, you know, well, Jesus, I've had such terrible trials in my life. Why did you do this to me? I thought I'd lost you. Um, and, and of course he's never lost us. Um, we have lost him. Um, I do think there's kind of a cool parallel too in the Emmaus disciples at the end of the gospel, they had lost Jesus by death. And of course, Jesus is, is flabbergasted on that occasion that they still do not understand uh, the scriptures, the law and the prophets, the promises of God about his Messiah. Uh, and, and again, that they discover Jesus, if you will, in the breaking of the bread. And what do they do? They return to Jerusalem. Uh, where they they tell the message of the resurrected Lord to the disciples, who of course now have uh, been found by Jesus in the upper room. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, I love the way you, you talked about he's Jesus is findable, you know, in the play, well, he, because he wants to be found, and this is I, I think this is really important, and it does I think start to take us to to Jesus' words, you know, why were you looking for me? I, I don't think Jesus is he's not mad at Mary and Joseph because they came back to Jerusalem, you know, like, it's not like he's saying, hey, you should have just gone back to Nazareth and let me be here. And that, that's right, not right. the point. I mean, it sounds a lot more to me like Jesus is saying, why didn't you know where to look for me? You should have known because I told you where I was going to be and, and I wanted you to find me there. And I think that's such a, I mean, what a, what a beautiful text for us still. Jesus, he's not He's not trying to fool us. He's not playing hide and seek, trying and hoping we never find him. He wants us right. to find him, and so he tells us where to look. And then he's there, just like he promised. Yeah, exactly. Well, and of course, uh, we know from the previous sections of Luke, you know, how much of this had been delivered by God to to Mary. And of course, St. Matthew tells us how much is delivered to Joseph. Uh, you know, so uh, it is intriguing that they seem to have a little, uh, what would you say, brain blank uh, about who this who this child is. And again, what happens is God gives them um, the revelation they need as they're walking through life. They're confronted with the Savior himself fulfilling his mission, being in the temple, being about the business of his mission. I want to make sure we talk to what that is, the being about the business of his mission. But before we get too far from the where they find him, and we, we did touch on this briefly on the previous side of the break, this this conversation that they, Mary and Joseph, when they get to the temple and they find Jesus, he's engaged in this conversation. And, and as you said, oh, to be a fly on the wall and have heard it. What I mean, what kind of picture should we have in our minds of this conversation? What is the back and forth that's going on here in the temple with Jesus and these rabbis? Well, I mean, for starters, of course, we know that the rabbis from uh, rural communities came into Jerusalem and would sit in the temple. Um, it, there was kind of public teaching going on. Of course, Jesus participates in that public teaching quite intensively during his public ministry uh, following his baptism by John. Um, so, so this was sort of standard operating procedure. Um, and they would, you know, uh, the rabbis would have this back and forth going. Um, there were different schools of the rabbis, of course, there was Hillel and Shammai, and, and they debated, uh, you know, between each other uh, constantly. 
Um, and, you know, we do see some of the rabbinic methods of argumentation uh, even reflected in the New Testament, um, like in Romans 10, where Paul, you know, gives the series of rhetorical questions uh, and concludes faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, so this was this was a common method, uh, the rhetorical uh, question uh, building to a climax. And I think those are the kinds of things uh, that were being done where uh, Jesus was um, amazing, uh, those rabbis and those who stood around to witness this. Um, it's interesting. Commentators say that Mary and Joseph, being humble Galileans, uh, would not have sort of stuck their nose in there. They certainly wouldn't have spoken. And I think this is part of their amazement. When they get there, they find Jesus at the center of the circle and the object of interest, uh, both in terms of the questions he's asking and the replies that he's giving when questioned. Um, now, again, the specific content uh, of what they were, uh, you know, bandying about, we don't know. I mean, and and but I do think your speculation about what does the Passover mean is a great place to start in speculating about what the content of the discussion might have been. Right, right, yeah, and it, it is speculation, pious speculation, I hope, but but yeah, specu- <laughs> speculation, and and we don't know precisely the content, but I I do think you know, and just to because the way that that Luke phrases it, you know, that Jesus is sitting among the teachers, he's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. That that when we think of someone asking questions, like Jesus, I guess the the picture that I think we should have of Jesus, he's the one who's in control of this conversation. He's the he's the the primary rabbi or the primary teacher. Is that a fair like he's the one running the show? If I can say it that way, he's not sort of I don't know, or, or am I am I going too far with that? Well, it is it is. I think you've got something in the sense that Luke specifically says that he is in their midst. He doesn't just say among them or with them. He's in the middle of the thing. Um, and and I do think he he, despite being respectful to the rabbis, I think he certainly is that. Uh, ends up being the kind of uh, um, center ring of the circus. Um, he's the one the spotlight ends up on, uh, you know, without kind of, you know, preening or crowing. I mean, that's not his, his thing. He doesn't go out into the streets and shout. Um, but, but he, he's amazed the rabbis because of his grasp on the old Testament and its meaning and how it applies, uh, to the people of his time. So Jesus, in the midst of the rabbis, everyone's amazed. They're all, you know, everyone who's listening is amazed at his answers. Mary and Joseph finally see him. They join in that amazement and that astonishment. And Mary speaks, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And as you, I appreciate the way that you, you brought that out, that at this point, Mary and Joseph may th- have thought that Jesus was dead. And I I guess I never really had thought of that, even just from the, the human perspective. If I lost a 12-year-old son for three days in a big city, that's probably what I would think, too. Again, that, that human element, I think, is, is very clear in the words that Mary speaks to Jesus. Right, right. Yeah, she's agonized. Uh, and can you imagine how she felt in those three days? Well, how did the believers feel after the after the crucifixion 
of Jesus in those three days. I mean, he's dead. Uh, they, 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 they cannot get their heads around his wonderful promise that this was part of God's plan and that he would rise on the third day. Um, and, and likewise, Mary and Joseph can't see the bigger uh, picture of why they might find their son in the temple. Um, and, and again, welcome to human weakness. Right. Even, even in these great saints, these pious believers that, that God has chosen to be the earthly family of, of our Savior. Um, you know, so when we stumble, we're, we're a great deal like the great saints. And of course, God is the one who's continually rescuing us uh, as, as Jesus does his parents on this occasion. Yeah, so okay, let's let's talk about Jesus' words then to Mary and Joseph. We've talked a little bit, why were you looking for me? And then, yeah. did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Uh, there's several things we can talk about, particularly with that second question. Let, let me just start with this one, Pastor Murray. When Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house, is, is there a, a bit of, I don't know, if a rebuke is too strong a word, at least a reminder to Mary— who has just said to Jesus, behold, your father, referring to Joseph, is yeah. Jesus calling her back to a little bit of what she should already know about who his father is? Well, I think so. I mean, again, I don't think he's intending to be um, obnoxious by any means, right. but but he also wants to be extremely clear with her uh, about, uh, again, his ultimate commitments um, and, and what those ultimate commitments mean, I mean, again, we're reminded, you know, that a sword will pierce your own soul too, from earlier in Luke two, um, that, you know, you do have this terrible threat against Mary's own heart, uh, because of what he would bear. Um, and maybe sometimes Jesus himself is bearing that sword. And I think he uses it here. Uh, to make clear that his ultimate commitment is to the mission that his father has given him. Um, and, and, and again, as you said earlier, you know, we get this divine necessity, um, you know, uh, about the things that are of my father, it is necessary for me to be, or even in the things of my father, not merely just about them, but, but immersed in them. Uh, and and so you get now what's the divine necessity? It is necessary that and so on. Uh, you have to you know people say well you know Jesus is God things aren't absolutely necessary for him, but they are. And but what drives the necessity is the question. The necessity is driven by our desperate need. His heart is so committed to our salvation. Uh, he loves us so completely and so deeply that he, can he cannot contemplate doing anything other than being about the mission in the things that the Father has given him to do. And again, to begin it in the temple, you know, he is the living temple. Uh, you know, he'll turn the temple inside out on himself, basically, um, uh, by by dying as the perfect sacrificial victim. And on the third day, 
you know, raised to be the Lord of the church uh, unto eternity. Um, but, but all of that is in his mind. Uh, he's seeking not himself, but us, uh, seeking our need, our forgiveness, uh, our need for his uh, ability to reveal himself as the God uh, concerned about his people in their, in their now, uh, just as with the rabbis, but also with us. Uh, one of the, the way you're talking here, Pastor Murray, is, is another way, place I want to look at this. You, you've been talking about Jesus being about the things or in the things of his Father. The ESV, as it's translated in the text, says, he asks, Jesus asks, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? But there is a footnote, and I think this is true of, of most English translations, depending on which they pick. The, the footnote suggests that it could also be translated about my father's business. So, and, and that sounds like the way you're leaning with this. How, I guess, how do those two things go together, Jesus being in the temple and then being about his father's business and the divine necessity of those things? Right. So it's a both and, right? Um, he's in the house um, that, of course, you know, uh, uh, he'll, he'll cleanse twice, um, you know, once at the end of Luke, but of course, John gives us a, a, an earlier cleansing. Uh, you know, you've made my father's house uh, a den of robbers um, uh, rather than a house of prayer. Um, and of course, he casts out, you know, the the um, the emporium of uh, of buying and selling uh, uh, before before his um, uh, arrest and, and trial and uh, crucifixion uh so you know his heart is really upon this place um because the father has given it as the place of his presence among his people you know pillar of of uh fire by night cloud by day um and now the one who is that pillar himself has suddenly come to his temple um, there's every reason, therefore, to have that amazement, uh, not only on the part of the rabbis, but on the part of his parents, because now again, he's confronting them as the God uh, who has come to rescue his people and to revive the temple's real meaning in his own person. Uh, it's all been always been shadowed under the sacrificial system, and now the fulfilling sacrifice uh, is has come among his people there, um, and and that is certainly always his father's business because his father has the same heart toward us as he himself does. We know the father's heart because the son is revealing this compassionate uh, love and forgiveness that that uh, that the father has toward us. Uh, so in in those two questions from Jesus, then he is calling Mary and Joseph back to that that true knowledge of who he is, of what he's come to do for them and for for all sinners. So now, of course, in, in verse fifty, again, you see this very human element. They didn't understand it at the time, right. and and I mean, you know, I, it's twelve years into his his life here. I I can I understand why they didn't understand it. I don't think I would have either. But mm -hmm. but then in verse 51, you get this marvelous, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit already, it's marvelous note that Jesus did go down with them. He went back to Nazareth with them, and he was submissive to them. I mean, tell us again why, why that is important for us, both for Jesus as Savior and as example. 
Right. Well, I mean, for, first of all, I mean, I think their weakness of understanding is our weakness of understanding. Right. And, and of course, we see this continually on the part of the disciples, even to the point in, in Matthew's gospel where Jesus rebukes Peter um, because Peter gets the confession right, but doesn't understand the implications. Um, they perhaps had the confession right, Mary and Joseph, but didn't understand the implications and they were confronted you know, by Jesus' willingness to, you know, be discovered the third day. Uh, and so they're just beginning now to get glimpses of cross and resurrection. And, and all the more amazing is that, given the fact that this child, who is all these things and is personally completely aware of them, still submits to his human family and their authority you know, willingly and gladly fulfilling for us the fourth commandment in ways that we couldn't even begin to uh, fulfill, even imagine fulfilling. Uh, it would have been an, an interesting experience to be uh, Mary and Joseph uh, dealing with this child who is perfectly submissive to them. And then presumably there were other children in the family, um, however they would have come along. Uh, because, of course, they're mentioned later in the Gospels, um, and they would not have been perfectly right. submissive. Uh, you know, so they must have been reminded throughout the childhood of Jesus of, of who this was by way simply of his willingness to submit to their authority. Hmm. And, and again, for us, who do we think we are if, we, if we're not submissive to the, to the family that, that God has sent to us? Yeah. So again, Jesus there as a submissive child is fulfilling the law for us as one who's been placed under that law, Galatians 4. He's doing it for us. But then there is also that element of example that, that we are set as an, and what, I mean, what a glorious thing for, for a child. I think Luther talks about this in the, in the large catechism that, and maybe not using this particular example, but I mean, wow, what a, what a good work that God has given us. And it's so simple to be obedient to my parents. It seems yeah. so simple, and yet it's it's God-pleasing. It's it's so God-pleasing that Jesus himself does it. What a what a marvelous lifting up of, of the vocation of being a child that we see Jesus give here. Right. Yeah, he becomes uh, the, the true example of a child for us in our childhood. And, and ultimately, of course, the perfect child over against his father so that we also are finding ourselves under the authority of our father, uh, respecting and honoring him who is our father in heaven. Um, the other thing, by the way, too, is, um, uh, you know, he calls God my father. And that is unique. The closest that the Old Testament comes to this is, our father and only a couple of times but these are the first words that jesus speaks that we know of the first recorded words of jesus uh so what what is he doing he's giving the word uh about who his father is well what the first almost the first word that comes out of my grandchildren's mouths i've got young grandchildren uh is dada daddy and but this is exact we get the first words from jesus and they're telling us who his father is and uh, so i mean this is really significant stuff 
Well, and then, I mean, with these being Jesus' first words recorded, and then, I, I mean, my mind goes to the way that Jesus then does teach his disciples, you and me, to pray our Father. You know, he includes right. us in that. And then thinking right. the way, you know, Paul talks about with the Spirit being sent into our hearts so that we do cry this same thing, Abba, Abba Father. Father. I mean, what a, right. wow, what a glorious thing that, that the first words of Jesus recorded end up becoming our words as as those who are brought into him. This is a marvelous. Yep, Absolutely. Now, Pastor Murray, we've got about three minutes here. I do want to touch base real briefly on, on verse 52. What, is, what does it mean that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? Right. So according to his human nature, um, he was susceptible to growth. I mean, obviously, um, he goes from being a 12-year-old to being uh, an adult. Um, and, and, of course, all this he undergoes, his growth as a person, um, uh, according to his human nature, um, so that, um, we understand that he uh, knows what we go through as we grow and mature, um, and, and, you know, seek to be respected by our community and those around us. So, um, so he's growing in these things, according to his human nature, not according to his divine, of course, because all these things are his from eternity, uh, according to his divine nature. So, um, uh, you know, it's part really of his taking on fully uh, our human nature uh, that he goes through the experience of growth. Um, and of course, uh, the people around him, and, and I think Mary and Joseph especially, are just amazed at the grace that comes from this child. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, the other kids are fighting about who gets to, uh, you know, who, which child is supposed to watch the sheep this week. He goes, no, I'll do it. <laughs> and they're just like, what, what child says these things? Uh, and, uh, where they're fighting over toys, he hands his over. And I mean, you know, you could, you could speculate about all of this too, but, um, but, you know, he, he is a gracious person, and this is recognized uh, by everybody. Uh, it's, it's, it's happening in the sight of God. It's happening in the sight of men. Just briefly, without a, with about a minute, Pastor Murray, to wrap things up, with Jesus, you know, growing, as you said, according to his human nature, what's, what's the comfort for us as Christians to recognize that Jesus, he went through all this just like I do? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think especially for um, children going through puberty, with all of its trials and difficulties, um, you do not have a God who is unable to sympathize uh, with that trial. Um, he's been through it. Now, he didn't have to go through it to understand it, but he went through it that we might understand that he knows what we're going through and can sympathize with our weaknesses. Um, so I find it deeply comforting um, that that he's been through all of that um, and and has experienced the trials of growth um, in in of course uh, a perfect way, but still uh, you know knows what it is to to go through all those trials. Pastor Scott Murray is pastor at Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. Also, third vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, helping us today with Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Pastor Murray, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure, Pastor Apple. 
I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 2 or any of the gospel, according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.